Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 235. Well, just ahead, iRhythm Technologies sells more and loses more. But will it ever put its regulatory problems behind it? And Adobe gets rocked after disappointing earnings. But listen to the CEO. Is it a head fake? And a fascinating conversation with IonQ CEO Peter Chapman. This is the only pure play in the stock market for quantum computing, IonQ is. And our interview with the CEO is going to leave your head spinning about the future of computing. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more and get 20% off if you use this link, Braintrust.com slash drilldown. Well, I'm Futurum's Chief Market Strategist, Corey Johnson. Welcome to Futurum's The Drill Down, where we explain the business stories behind stocks and a move. Joining me on the mic today, Ben Wilson, who's always been here, just not always on the mic. <laughs> exactly. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? I want to start looking at a San Francisco company called iRhythm Technologies. iRhythm Technologies. I like the sound of that. iRhythm Technologies trades with the ticker IRTC. Market cap of about $3 billion. Shares were up 14% in the last week. But for the last 12 months, shares are down 3%. So what's the story with iRhythm Technologies? So I can't give you a good reason for the shares at 14%. Uh, small caps rallying and uh, in, in the face of this Federal Reserve news. It's not, it doesn't seem to be stock specific. Indeed, this uh, San Francisco-based maker of cardiac monitoring devices for arterial fibrillation. Fib, can I say that? Arterial fibrillation. Oh, screw it. AFib. They make stuff that monitors hearts for AFib. Uh, they monitor um, and, and, and send information out uh, wirelessly. Um, the company's been a, a historic money loser. Um, if you go on our Twitter, you'll see uh, I'll, I'll post a chart of all of the rising sales and the rising losses. The more they sell, the more they lose. Or what's the old saying? We'll lose money in every sale and make it up in volume. This company's never made a dime. Um, but... Um, that's not the biggest problem here, strangely. The biggest problem, uh, and they have an almost entirely new management team in the last uh, year or so, is that there are some historic problems left over by the old management team, as pointed out by the people you don't want to have it pointed out when you make a medical device, the FDA. That's right. The FDA, which monitors the monitoring companies, if you will, sent this company a warning letter in May of 23. So with this new management team, they arrive uh, with some problems from the old management team. A direct quote, in fact, from the management team, or from the FDA warning letter, the company failed to identify actions to correct and prevent quality problems despite being aware of them for years. It went on to say the company was aware of negative trends or critical customer complaints since 2019, but failed to initiate corrective and preventative actions. Not good. Another problem is their ability to monitor patient readings, um, what they call their mobile cardiac telemetry, or MTC, MCT. Uh, the FDA didn't find it up to snuff, and that could slow the release of new products, or heck, it could keep the management team from doing other important things like, you know, turning a profit. So here is the question, right? How close 
is iRhythm to getting the FDA off their back with mobile cardiac telemetry, MCT, or can they submit safe and effective paperwork to the FDA? That safe and effective paperwork is known as a 501k. I mean, think of the 501k as a driver's license for a medical device company. Okay, so listen in this soundbite here for can they get their MTC right and submit a 501k? And when you listen to this, can you hear the CFO? Does he sound like he's, you know, really sure this is about to have everything's okay and we're going to be ready to go? Or, yeah, we're kind of hoping. I don't know. You listen. Here's CFO Quentin Blackford. Tell me what you think. Based upon all the conversations with the FDA at this point, I continue to feel really good around the MCT timelines that we've put out there. I don't think there's any change to those from our perspective. You know, to be honest, we're having discussions as we speak with the FDA around the, the catch-up 510K pathway and, and whether that can be submitted um, in parallel with the design-enhanced features that we're putting onto the product so that the patient notification, the light, as well as some of the notification features in Zio Suite itself. So we're working with them. This is a bit of a, a unique scenario, if you will, that we're operating underneath a, a warning letter. Usually the 510Ks would be filed uh, in sequence to each other, but... It, Things could, you know, look a little bit different here as we continue to work with them, and there's always the possibility it could be in parallel. But I, I continue to feel good about the overall timelines with MCT right now. So he feels good, and hey, maybe it's good enough for iRhythm and all of their their patients. We certainly hope so, but we will be watching. I don't know if did that sound very convincing to you, Ben. I don't know. I mean, maybe and hope so seem like the operative descriptions here. I don't know that it seems the most optimistic. I wish them well. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Johnson Controls International. Johnson Controls International trades with the ticker JCI with a market cap of about $36 billion. Shares are down 3% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are also down 20%, which is just horrible given that the S&P 500 is up 14% in the last year. So what's the story with Johnson Controls International? You didn't make any Johnson jokes there. I'm very pleased with you, Ben. You know, I did consider it. I was hanging out with a Spanish friend this weekend who has trouble saying my first name, Corey. So he would just call me from the opposite room. He'd be across where we go, Johnson, Johnson. And then I started I calling it. him Johnson. That had nothing to do with Johnson Controls, but I wanted to amuse you. So look, um, Johnson Controls is a tale of two businesses. Uh, some of it's going really well, some of it's not. And it's really hurt the company. It's a global construction supplier. Specifically, they do a lot of stuff around HVAC. So the company announced last month um, that right before they released their fourth quarter report, which they finally just released, that it would be delayed because the company had been hacked back in September. Um, and so they said that was really disruptive, whatever. So Q4 sales, 6.9 billion, up 3%, 2% organically. So take out the acquisitions they've done, but flat operating margins. Um, but some parts of their business were doing really well. Some of it really crummy. The really good part, building solutions in North America, their biggest business has a lot of HVAC in it and sales in the quarter of $2.8 billion up 8% over the last year. So remember, I told you that uh, the rest of the business was not doing that well, that's uh, only up about 2% organically. So that's so an 8% increase in U.S. business, I'm not good at math, but that's 400% better than their average growth rate. In particular, they cited strong growth in service and install and double-digit growth in applied HVAC and control. Now, full disclosure... I own shares in a much smaller company that is public that does HVAC work in particular. 
that I'm really focused on. So I really wanted to see what these results were about. Um, ben, I have historically never not talked about uh, stocks that I own or that I'm short. I might change that. Just, just I don't know. I'd be curious to know what listeners think, so let me know. But uh, I think I might start talking occasionally about individual stocks. Then, of course, I'll have to throw all the disclaimers that I'm a terrible investor. Don't listen to me. What the hell do I know? I'm not a licensed. I don't give a stock advice. You're a fool to listen to me. And who wants to hear me say that every week? But in any case, I'd listen to a podcast that was just you giving disclaimers, Corey. Just me giving, just me reading legally. I'll get some medicine bottles and maybe I'll read FDA letters uh, written to medical advice companies. Just for actually, I just did that, didn't I? In any case, <laughs> uh, Johnson Controls, Asia business down seven percent. China in particular was very weak. Uh, their global business products down two percent. But as I mentioned, right here in the U.S. Uh, things are going well, particularly around HVAC. And I know what you're thinking, Ben, why am I so obsessed with HVAC besides my personal holdings since I'm a tech guy? That's absolutely the only thing I've been able to think about since you started this. Well, here's the thing. HVAC is everything to technology. Follow me here. Hot semiconductor sales are driven by hot data centers. And hot data centers need to be cool data centers to run these semiconductors. And what do they need to do that? They need HVAC, and you can hear it from Johnson Controls International CEO, George Oliver. There is a big segment here that's targeted on data centers because of the position that we, we have and the strength that we have uh, earned with the, the products that we're bringing into that segment. You know, we see a significant demand here over the next uh, multiple years that we're positioned now to capitalize on uh, in line with the customer relationships that we have. And so that's gonna continue. But when you look at applied, when you look at our overall commercial HVAC um, business, you know, when we, what's happened is across the board with the secular trends around decarbonization, sustainability, efficiency, um, we are uniquely positioned with our technology and the way that we develop technology. We engineer and design right from the compressor to the end market, making sure that our equipment is, is optimized for the application that we provide. As a result of that, that has a broad base positioned us to be able to now capitalize on these secular trends broad base, not just within data centers, but across many of the other verticals. And so I, as, as we think about the work that we've done to reinvest over the last three or four years in the position that we have, we have a very strong position across our applied portfolio that I believe beyond, you know, well above the, the economic growth that we're going to now be able to capitalize on because of that, that increased demand. So it's pretty broad based. So um, data centers, I think that's such an interesting part of this story. It's not a place you'd think to look for it. And clearly there are other failing businesses, not failing businesses, but there are other businesses not growing as fast, aren't showing off this pure play in data center HVAC. But man, if you could get into the HVAC business for data centers, that'd be a good business to be in. I'll keep that in mind when I'm thinking about starting my next business, Corey. There you go. Corey, what is your next drill down? We've talked about them a lot this year, not for any particular reason. I'm a big user of the company's products, but yes, Adobe. Adobe trades with the ticker ADBE with a market cap of about $284 billion. Shares are up 5% for the last week, but down about that much in after hours trading here on December 13th. But for the last 12 months, shares are up 82%. So it's not too shabby. What's the story with Adobe? Well, yes, here we are on December 13th recording this. And yes, uh, Ben, I know you've been celebrating all day Taylor Swift's birthday. <laughs> do you remember, Ben, <laughs> when she used to holiday. do concerts and she'd write 13 on the inside of her hand? 
I mean, I wasn't there for any of them, but I'm sure it was fun. You weren't, no, no, when they were old concerts, not this year, but back in the day. <laughs> oh, right. The ones that I was at back in the day. You yes. weren't for so many years you were at in the awards. In any case, December 13th is Taylor Swift's birthday, as we like to call it around here. Adobe earnings. Um, their quarter for Adobe ends on December 1st and after uh, an amazing 12 months for the stock, as you mentioned, 82% before uh, today. Adobe disappointing investors with guidance for the year, about 2% uh, below expectations for next year. I, I don't know. That's That upset the market apparently, but it does raise the question after such a great run, is the party over? So you look through the numbers, you see revenues up 12% on a really big number. That's really good. Um, and with the stock flying, the, well, the, uh, let, me, let me dig in a little deeper. The digital media business, up 13%. The smaller digital experience business, up 10% year over year. And yeah, the stock has been flying. Now, the company bought 1.8 million shares back. That's supposed to be a good thing for investors, but companies rarely do this well. Nonetheless, uh, it was a big expense. cost the company about a billion dollars in the last quarter alone. But hey, the company generated $1.6 billion in cash flow for the quarter. So I look at a quarter that was, by most respects, pretty, pretty, pretty good. At least to me. I don't know. But maybe this guidance is reflecting conservatism, not a changing business outlook. Maybe, just maybe, it's a stock market game, not a business game. They're lowering expectations after a fantastic stock year and a fantastic business year. I mean... The company did, uh, as I mentioned, year-end, they did $19.1 billion in the year. But that guidance had once been $16.5 billion. So Adobe has a history of, of guide low and outperform. I don't know. So here is Shantana Narayan, the CEO of um, Adobe. And again, listener, you listen to what he's got to say, and you tell me um, if his guidance is just a, a softball here. Um, because these are the decisions that certainly investors are going to have to make. If you recall, uh, we actually had guided to 1650 first, then we upped it, as you know, to 1750 and ended with, uh, you know, 1913. And so, uh, to your point, on the execution front, we've delivered some great innovative products. Uh, we've expanded the customer base with new products like Express and Firefly. We're certainly focused on surfaces. Uh, you know, and making sure all of our uh, flagship products are available across uh, all surfaces. And so we do have multiple uh, growth drivers, to your point, and we are focused on monetizing the opportunity. I mean, I would say, you know, we take our guide very seriously. Uh, the other way of looking at it, Cash, is it's the highest annual uh, guide ever in terms of, you know, what the guide we've issued. It's the highest Q1 guide ever. And, you know, uh, we want to go... Uh, again, execute against this large opportunity and have another record year. So we're feeling good. The momentum is certainly there in the business, uh, but we take our guidance uh, at this point of the year very seriously. So there is Shantanu Narayan saying, we said it, we mean it. I, I, I don't know. Well, low-balling guidance seems like a good strategy, but It, it might me. be if that's what he's doing. Uh, I, you know, We'll know over time in any case. Uh, interesting quarter from Adobe. All right, coming up. Uh, I think, um, Ben, I've been spending so much time, uh, maybe as much as I have in, in years, reading about how computing is working, how computing is changing, how semiconductors are changing, how data centers are changing. And nothing is uh, bigger on the horizon than what could happen with quantum computing. There is one publicly traded company that's purely focused on quantum computing. It's a company called IonQ. 
And their CEO, Peter Chapman, joins us with a conversation about the future of computing and what they're doing about it right now and delivering results with real customers right now. Eye on Q right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by Peter Chapman. He's the CEO of a company called IonQ. Strange that the top stock ticker is also IonQ, but... We don't care about stocks. We care about businesses. And in this case, we care a lot about technology because, Peter, your company is at an absolute bleeding edge of technology in quantum computing. That is correct. Uh, we build quantum computers. It's kind of an amazing thing. It, it is. Um, especially, you know, I grew up in the age of um, uh, classical computers at the very beginning. And I'm kind of going through and reliving my childhood, but now in a quantum way. So, so it's a challenging conversation. I'm so used to talking to companies that whose day-to-day operations govern the discussion, and I want to take a more long view. In your case, your company is all about the long view. So, what is quantum computing? How is it fundamentally different from the kinds of computing that we engage in on a daily basis? Okay, so the um, so I'll say a couple of things. First, there is no Stupid questions when it comes to quantum because no one understands it. So that's Just stupid I, people who ask them. No, no, no. It's everything's fair game. Um, it has also been said that the person who can explain quantum is actually worthy of a Nobel Prize unto themselves. You don't have to do the ah. science. You don't have to do any of those things. Um, and so, um, and let's just say that in today's podcast, uh, neither one of us will be winning a Nobel Prize for this description. So um, it's, it's um, originally Feynman uh, realized uh, this is the same Feynman that Manhattan Project and, and same and a brilliant physicist realized that with classical computing, that modeling mother nature um, basically could, would never really happen on a classical computer. Even if you allowed Moore's law to go for another million years, it still really wouldn't be able to model what Mother Nature does because... And this is, um, and this is Richard Feynman's n- notion that, that things happen in over many dimensions, not just ones and zeros. That, that is exactly it. Um, and so uh, Feynman's kind of thought was, well, we need a, a computer that thinks in quantum to be able to represent quantum. And um, so that's kind of one aspect of what quantum computing. So this is, for instance, in the world of chemistry. Um, It turns out that um, chemistry by its very nature, of course, is quantum. And so maybe you need a quantum computer to model quantum chemistry. Um, And so maybe more directly to your question, quantum is uh, an ability to do massive amounts of parallelization in a way that classical computers cannot. And so in classical computer, um, as an example, if you were gonna go and solve a maze and you wanted to use a classical computer, you would go through and look at every combination of walking through that maze. And maybe if I had a bunch of, of servers, what I could do is say, okay, this computer server over here, you take this path of the maze and this server over here you take a different one. And I could break up the problem set across many servers to be able to find the solution to the maze. 
but it's all being done sequentially, although maybe across multiple machines. In quantum, it can, it can find the solution to the maze all in a single instruction in a massive amount of parallelization where it goes and looks at all combinations at the same time. And so it's that ability which people are excited about. And interestingly also, uh, and another way to think about it might be that quantum computers aren't good at actually counting to two. Yes, no, But they're no, really well, good at figuring out the shape of a baseball. Um, yeah, it's a funny thing in that um, it looks like quantum computers might be good at solving differential equations, but have has a heck of a time adding one plus one. And so, you know, like how can those two things be at the same time? Um, but it's that is, in, in fact, the case. And yet when you look at what your company does, it's not necessarily a science project still. Right. I mean, you've actually, you know, this 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 ion trapping technology is not exclusive to ion Q. And, and and you have a product that's functional right now. Yeah, we're actually, um, you know, customers use the product every day uh, out on three clouds um, and in addition through our own private cloud. And we're uh, standing up manufacturing facilities to be able to start to ship computers to customers. Um, so very much so. Do you want to explain the ion trapping uh, technology? Sure. Um, Okay, so there's many ways um, these these quantum computers use at the uh, at the base a uh, something akin to a bit in uh, classical computing, but this one is called a qubit. And there's many different ways to build qubits. Um, they fall into two rough camps: man-made qubits and natural qubits. So um, we happen to to use a natural qubit, an individual ion. And uh, that gives us an advantage over the people who are doing man-made qubits because every one of our qubits is perfect. We use an individual atom for computing. So we're down at 0.02 nanometers. So if you, com you know, compare that, compare that to, to seven nanometers. For yeah, seven seven nanometers that's right, exactly. So we're all the way down um, and we're interacting with individual atoms to use them. And, and a bit classically is only zero and one. But a qubit is zero and one and, and all the positions in between. And so, um, so it's, it's, uh, that's one of the things about quantum is that it's not a, it's not a discrete state. As you remember, an electron running around, uh, um, in an, in an atom is in all places at the same time. So it's only when you measure it that you see in one particular place. And so, um, that's kind of what's going on here with quantum. So in our particular case is the qubits are extremely stable and uh, they're isolated from the environment and um, an ion trap technology uh, like ours today has got the best um, gate fidelities which allow us to do larger and larger computations compared to the other qubit modalities. So given that you've got this technology and others have this technology, and yet there are other projects out there that you see with these super cooled systems and these massive spaces. What, what, what do those systems do that yours can't and vice versa? Well, there's a couple of big differences. Um, um, we uh, cool the individual atoms, but not the entire computer. So um, the atoms are ultra cold, but the, dev the computing device itself is room temperature. So uh, what the other guys, the man-made qubits, what they're doing 
is to they're they're actually cooling you know silicon down to close to zero, and we don't have to do that. So that's a huge difference. In fact, actually, um, I believe that the cost of their refrigerator, the thing that requires them to get down to zero, actually costs more than our entire quantum computer uh, combined. And uh, your last quarterly filing showed that you were had an accumulated deficit over $300 million, I think. Uh, so you spent a lot of money on this over time. Um, yes, it's, a, it's, you know, quantum computing is, um, like any kind of hardware, is an expensive endeavor. You're building custom chips, custom hardware. And I've, and I've, I've read that things like, that, that certain, that the, an age of quantum computing would enable some really disruptive things. For example, computer security wouldn't work or Bitcoin's code could be instantly cracked. Yes. Um, one of the known algorithms for quantum that was found early on was how to factor prime numbers. And so that, that is the basis for encryption that we use today. When you go onto your browser and you say HTTPS and you log into your bank account, well, that's using uh, an encryption scheme, which is based on uh, factoring prime numbers. Um, unfortunately, quantum computers, when they get to be big enough, will be able to break that encryption fairly easily. So why hasn't it happened already? Uh, we haven't got a, a large enough uh, quantum computer, or there's another alternate. We haven't found a better algorithm yet. And so um, we know on one algorithm how to do it, but it needs a larger quantum computer. But the worry is, is over the next couple of years, is that we'll make progress on the hardware, but there'll be significant progress on the algorithm itself. And so then, so, uh, you know, maybe so that you've got customers will. who are able to use Google Cloud, uh, uh, Microsoft Azure, um, Azure, excuse me, um, um, uh, Google Cloud as well, to um, uh, uh, AWS, I should say as well, uh, as a way to get access to um, uh, IonQ's uh, quantum computing. What are they using it for? Most of the stuff that happens out on the cloud is um, people learning. So, you know, if you have an account on one of those three um, systems, for a couple of bucks, you can rent your Hello World application in quantum and do your first quantum. Um, so most of the things there are relatively small things where people are going through textbooks and learning all about quantum. Um, often for real applications, you need some dedicated uh, hardware time. Um, this is, you know, for those old enough, this, these early days are kind of like the old mainframe days. You would submit your job and go have a cup of coffee, maybe have dinner, maybe do some other things, and then your job would run in a time slice environment, and then you get your results um, several hours later. That's really funny. It, yes, we're, I said I'm reliving my childhood. It's on, you know, even I mean, that early part of it is, is I'm, Hopefully we're don't put in actual like cards into like, you know, those, those old yeah. perforated cards in the computer. Yes, we haven't yes. We never got quantum punch cards yet, but um, it's, um, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody comes up with that. So it's, it's, um, um, so, it, but if you're going to do a real application, you need dedicated time on a machine. And so um, usually people contact us directly for that. And is it also really about figuring out what kind of questions to ask and how to ask those questions? Very much so. So um, 
we have spent, you know, myself included, but, you know, mankind the last 50 years kind of optimizing algorithms for a classical approach to these things. Quantum is a very different way of thinking about the problem set. And so um, it requires, you know, more training. And, um, but it has an opportunity because we've, not, I don't want to say we've exhausted possibilities, but a lot of smart people have thought about for 40 years on how to get various algorithms you know, to, to be as good as they are. This is a new opportunity to think about the problems that the, the existing set of problems in a completely different way. And so um, that's an opportunity to kind of maybe move kind of uh, algorithmic development, which we use, everyone uses every day. When you, when you say Google Maps that you want to, you know, go from here to there, well, there's an algorithm that's been worked on over the, probably the last 40 years to make that better and better. But in that 40 years, no one ever considered a quantum algorithm. And well, now I mean, that's, that's the classic, the, the traveling salesman problem, right? Is, is the, right. the classic math problem that really hasn't gotten any easier with all of the compute. It's, it's been answered with brute force of compute power, but not, it, uh, which, which is to say, sorry, the traveling, if I can paraphrase it, and I'm a terrible at math, but I'll try anyway, you can correct me. Um, the <laughs> idea that, that you have to pick 10 stops for a traveling salesman and figure out the shortest route between them. That's right. Um, yeah, it it's turns really, out- It's a really hard math problem. Very hard math problem. Um, it, it turns out, I'll give you a little uh, kind of example of this is um, if it, it, the average driver for, let's say UPS or FedEx or Amazon delivers to 120 addresses every day. So the question is, what is the optimal route should I go to house A first or B first or any one of the 120? And there, where should I go to the second one? You would think that that's since we do it every day, that that would be something we figured out a long ago. But it turns out if people typed into their browser, and I'll do a little bit of high school math, the number of different combinations for 120 addresses is you subtract one and it's factorial. So if everyone in the browser right now, and it's a different tab, brought up 100, what is 119 factorial, they would see this massive number. That's the number of different combinations that a classical computer would have to look at to find the optimal solution. That's such a large number that it would take years, if not decades, to find just for one driver. So what is it that they do today to solve that problem? Well, for instance, the algorithm today that often some of these logistics companies do is when they come to an intersection, they don't allow the algorithm to consider turning left at the light because that reduces down the search space by 50%. And because now we'll just consider just going right, just because we need to reduce down the number of combinations. But of course, sometimes going left is the best way to get to the next house. And so we've given up on the optimal solution in exchange for making it computationally efficient. An answerable problem. An answerable problem. And where quantum comes in is not just there, but it's, let's take a major city in the United States. Um, you know, I don't know the number of, of drivers that are um, uh, in Boston that deliver for Boston, but let's say that it's um, 500. So that would be 500 times 120 addresses minus one factorial. 
And that would turn out to be a number which, you know, I haven't done out the math myself, but I wouldn't be surprised if it has a million zeros after it in terms of the number of combinations you would have to do. And that classically will never be solved to get to the optimal answer. But maybe with a big enough quantum computer, you could solve those kinds of problems. So given that this, uh, this, this infinite possibilities of your company, what are the milestones you have to set and you should be reaching? And indeed that the rest of us can look at IONQ and say, now they missed that quarter or they missed, not that quarter, but they said they were going to achieve this by a certain date and they didn't. What, what are you trying to set up for your team and say, hey, we got to get this done by the end of 2023 so that we can get this done by the middle of 2024? Absolutely. So um, we set up a set of uh, technical milestones um, based on what we call algorithmic qubits, but you could just, you know, a layman's term would be useful qubits qubits that you could use without seeing any error or limited error. And so um, uh, this year, the goal was to hit um, 29 useful qubits. Next year was 35, and the next one was 64. The reason uh, 64 is particularly important because most people in the quantum industry think that roughly 65 to 70 good enough qubits um, that then it can take on the world's largest supercomputers. So, um, you know, 64 is in that realm of kind of being able to take on the world's largest supercomputers for certain tasks. As we said at the very beginning, even with that capability, it might not be very good at adding one plus one, but might be good at solving some of these really computationally hard problems. It's a fascinating business. Um, what have you got to do to get there? Uh, it's, it, it, you know, every quantum computing company has different challenges. Ours happens to be one which is uh, largely engineering based. Uh, we don't need a breakthrough in material science or um, uh, physics or those kinds of things. It's mostly just an engineering problem of going through and uh, building uh, better, uh, more accurate, less noise machines. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. It's fascinating. And you've had a big, so your, your co-founders were scientists, uh, one at University of Maryland, one at Duke. One of them recently left. Yep. Um, yes, uh, the two, the company was originally, it's actually a fairly unusual story. Um, the two co-founders wrote a scientific paper and uh, back in 2015, and a venture capitalist uh, saw it and thought it read like a uh, business plan and approached them and said, I want to put up money for this. So this was the case where VC money was chasing the co-founders rather than the other way around. Um, and so uh, the uh, two co-founders and the um, venture uh, capitalists started the company in 2015. Um, they built several generations of hardware and about five years ago, um, I took over the job as CEO. Um, Chris, who's one of the two co-founders who'd left, would be the first to tell you, actually uh, says it, has said it many times, is that the basic science of what it is we're doing is, um, has been solved quite a long time ago. And, you know, he's, that's the area that his, his particular expertise. Increasingly, the problem, as I mentioned, is really an engineering problem. And so we've brought in a number of leaders um, from companies like Amazon and Apple and um, 
Blue Origin, who are kind of engineering experts in building products. And so we're in a kind of a different phase of the company. We're not in an R&D phase. We're in a, you know, engineering phase and moving towards a product uh, phase. So where the, the issues are making a better product, not doing fundamental R&D. Such a fascinating company and, and the multi-billion dollar valuation that you've achieved, I think, is because you sit there as the only pure play in quantum computing. Uh, and indeed, you seem to be hitting some of those goals and progress. And I wish you success in that going forward. Thank you. Uh, it's been fun talking with you. Good stuff. Peter Chapman is the CEO of IonQ. Coming up right after this, the drill down bite. One number that tells us a whole lot about all these freaking quantum numbers in IonQ right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Futurum Group, where analysts, researchers, advisors, content creators, and marketing experts help business leaders anticipate and understand shifts in their industries and build strategies to leverage disruptive innovation. With deep analysis, Futurum Group's extensive industry experience delivers reliable research and data, thought leadership, and actionable advice to help you with your strategy and go-to-market efforts. Futurum Group. And we're back with a drill down bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot. Ben Wilson with me as well. Um, ben, um, IonQ, quantum computing, it's kind of mind blowing in every possible way. But this company has delivered what it said it was going to deliver. Their last two major computers were delivered ahead of schedule. Um, and they, you know, one can only hope they do that again with their next uh, A64 computer due in 2025. So, how much faster? Is the A64 compared to the currently available AQ, I'm sorry, the AQ64 compared to the currently available AQ29? The answer is, you're thinking, is it 10 times? No, I'm thinking times? is it double because 64 is about twice 29, but I don't think right. that that's how they do it. That is not how much faster it will be. It will be 34 billion times faster in 2025 than the AQ29. That's the difference, they say, between the size of a basketball court and the size of the continental United States. Just a massive, massive change in the computing power of the next uh, AQ uh, computer, their AQ64, which they say will be ready in 2025. And certainly we will all be watching. Or you've been listening to Futurums, The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Thanks to Ben Wilson and my fabulous co-host. And more importantly, or just as importantly, I'm going to say more importantly, our editor extraordinaire, because he's damn good at it. If this thing sounds good, it's because I am. If it sounds bad, it's because of my lousy voice and other problems. Futurums, The Drill Down, a production of Futurums, The Business Podcast Network. <laughs>